On the first day, we spoke about the Dhamma as that which allows us to live above all problems, above all pain and misery. So this was the first topic that we discussed, what the, the benefits of Dhamma are. And then on the second day, we talked about what Dhamma is. Dhamma is the, the nature which is, which is peace, which is an equilibrium, which is a stillness beyond all positive and negative. This is what the Dhamma is. And so now we'll talk about one can have Dhamma through what method. And the method by which we can have Dhamma is having a mind that is free of positive and negative, as we've implied already. For this reason, we need the kind of knowledge which allows us to supervise or watch over the mind so that any kind of feeling or sense of positive or negative doesn't arise, so that the mind remains free of or above positive and negative, so that it remains peaceful and free without any, any positiveness or negativeness concocting it or brewing it up. And so now we ask you to listen very carefully while we explain how the mind can be concocted, can be cooked up by positive and negative. We've got things that are called the internal ayatana. These are the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. This word ayatana is difficult to translate, but it means things that can be experienced. So we could translate them as experienceables or anything that we can experience. So we've got these inner eye, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. And then in the world around us, there are external experienceables, the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical sensations, and mental objects. Living in this world, it's impossible to avoid having contact with all these, with all these things. All these ayatana can't help but interact and interrelate. And so the thing that is absolutely crucial for us is to, to live in this world with a correct knowledge and understanding that doesn't let this interaction stir up any positive or negative. For example, we can use the first pair that of the eyes and external sights and forms. When the eye and a form, a shape, a color, when these come into association, when they get, when they interact, then there arises a third thing, which is seeing by way of the eye, or we can call it eye consciousness. When there are the three things, the, the eye or the eyes, the external form 
and eye consciousness, the three together are called patsa, patsa, which we usually translate as contact. If we're foolish or stupid at this point of contact, then there will arise positive and negative. If, if there is a lack of correct understanding at this patsa, then we say that there is avicca, not knowing or ignorance. If this contact takes place with avicca, with incorrect understanding, or with no understanding about how things work, then there arises what we call vetana or feeling. If, if, and then this feeling will also be ignorant. It will be foolish because that that not knowing is still is still in effect. If there is this ignorant feeling, and it it pleases pleases us, then we take that to be positive. If it's displeasing then we take it to be negative. Because we, we lack an understanding, a correct understanding of how this all works, because there's no, no true wisdom about what takes place at contact, then that contact will give birth to, to feeling, to blind feeling, and then this, in turn, is the source of positive, of the positive and the negative. <clears throat> so when there's this ignorant contact, it gives birth to this ignorant feeling. And when there's ignorant feeling, there naturally arises ignorant desire, foolish, blind desire. If the, the feeling is of the positive sort, then there arises a, a blind desire to, to have, to get, to possess, to accumulate. If it's a negative feeling, then there arises the foolish desire to, to harm, to hurt, to get rid of, to destroy, to kill. So in this way, blind desire, stupid desire, develops out of that original ignorant contact. If there's the positive kind of feeling and there arises the ignorant desire to get or to have, <clears throat> this is this causes the the mental defilement of the kind we call raka, lust or lopa, greed. It will this lust and greed arises toward positive feelings. If, if it's a negative kind of feeling, then there arises this ignorant desire of the kind to get rid of, to kill, which we call tosa, dosa, anger or hatred, and kota, anger. Now if, but sometimes there's, it's not quite certain or mind can't really distinguish whether it's positive or negative, can't decide. And then there arises the kind of mental defilement we call moha, which is delusion or confusion. 
about what's happening, that, that original foolishness that we're, we're so accustomed to. From these <clears throat> ignorant desires, these mental defilements, then there, there develops or there arises the concept of I, the belief in self. If there's that positive ignorant feeling and desire for it, the greed, the lust, this liking gives causes next a sense of an I who likes, the liker, the liker, the desirer. Or if it's the negative kind of thing, the negative kind of blind desire, this defilement gives rise to a thought of the hater. If there's anger or hatred, there must be the mind figures, there must be, assumes there must be someone, something that, that hates the hater. From these <clears throat> ignorant desires, these mental defilements, then there, there develops or there arises the concept of I, the belief in self. If there's that positive ignorant feeling and desire for it, the greed, the lust, this liking gives causes next a sense of an I who likes, the liker, the liker, the desirer. Or if it's the negative kind of thing, the negative kind of blind desire, this defilement gives rise to a thought of the hater. If there's anger or hatred, there must be the mind figures, there must be, assumes there must be someone, something that, that hates, the hater. Or if there's the third kind of mental defilement, that confusion, then there arises the thought, I'm confused, I don't know what's going on, I'm all in a mess. In this way, these mental defilements, these few foolish desires, give rise to the sense of self, the concept of I. Now, some of you may be a bit confused by this. It may sound somewhat illogical. Some of you are asking, what, what's going on here? How can it be that the actor comes after the action? How is it that first there is the action and then the, the one who does the action comes later? Our logical thinking may assume that you must have the actor first for there to be any action. However, what we're talking about is we're talking about natural, natural facts. We're not just talking about the logic that we might impose on, on reality. What this idea of an actor, this sense of I, this belief in ego, this concept of me, this is all an illusion. The real, there's no real I or ego or self or any of that. This is just a belief that we come up with. First, there is the action. And because of misunderstanding that action, that activity, the mind conceives of, it, of a self, of an I. So there's nothing illogical about this. This is just how it naturally happens. The facts are that first there is action, but if that's under, misunderstood, 
we we interpret that there must be an actor. So there's there's nothing illogical about this. This this actor arises after the action grows out of the action. This can happen because that actor is just illusion. It's just a, a mirage or an illusion which the mind clings to. There is no real I or self or soul anywhere. No matter how much you look, you can't, you can't find it. And so this actor naturally can come out of confused or misunderstood action. If we act ignorantly, then there will arise this illusion of the actor. This, this confusion will take place. And then, then we have this, what seems to be a very real I or ego. There's actually no reality to it, but we've confused ourselves so much that we, we take this illusion to be more real than real. Actually, it's just something the mind cooks up. It's just a kind of attachment, or in Pali we call it upadana. Upadana, the mind is just grasping and clinging to something very firmly. And then in that clinging, it, it thinks there is tremendous reality, and it's, it's just deceiving itself. If a knife or a razor cuts, cuts the finger, First there arises pain. Pain happens very quickly. And then after that arises the, the concept, I hurt or I am in pain. If we watch carefully what happens, first there is the, the cut and then there is pain. And then comes the, the I, the elusive concept of I, of, of self. If we look carefully and see how this works, then this will show us very clearly what is meant by the word anatta, not self. If you look into this carefully, or this will be the, looking into this carefully is the best way to study anatta. First there is pain, then I hurt, I am in pain. When, when there is this pain in the finger or whatever, we never look at it as, as pain is arising for the nervous system. We never look at it as the nervous system is experiencing pain. The nerves are feeling pain. We always interpret it as, I hurt. It's my pain. It's hurting me. If you look at this carefully, you won't, you can get this whole thing about ego and I straightened out. So now we've got this illusion of ego happening, this, this false belief in I, in self, in ego is, is happening. It happens without anyone having to be taught about it. It's because of ignorance there, there arises this upadana, this grasping and clinging. And then through all that, we end up with the sense of I, of ego, of self, even though there's no such thing. But because of the mind working with incorrect information, 
it makes these, these false assumptions. We don't have to be taught this by anyone. It'll happen anyway. For example, if a child is walking and bumps into a chair, when, when running into the chair, it will hurt the child, the, say that the leg hurts. And then the child will have the sense, I hurt. And then because of this ignorance, will project selfhood on the chair. I'm an ego, it's an ego. And then the child kicks it out of anger at this, this other self. I'm a soul, the chair's a soul. Kick it and, and get revenge, take out my, my pain and anger on the chair. This is how ignorance not only cooks up this attachment to self inside ourselves, but then this, it gets, it spills overboard and the mind projects selfhood on all kinds of things, even onto chairs. So be very careful to try and understand this point. We're, we're talking about this, this point right here of upadana is the most crucial one of all because right here with this feeling of I, this, this egoistic concept, this is where all suffering, all misery occurs. Without this, this I, without this attachment creating the I, there would be no pain, no suffering in, in human experience. But because of attachment, because of this grabbing onto things and clinging to them, then there is the sense of I get, I lose, I have, I want, I experience, I hurt, I'm happy, and I'm afraid, and all these I, I, I things over and over again, all this self, all this soul, all this ego constantly bubbling up. And through this, misery has its, its, its opportunity to, to torment us. So understanding this, this upadana, how it happens, what it is, is, is crucial. Now if there, if there exists this, this I, or in Pali, Atta, Self, then there also comes up the mind, or Ataniya, of Self. If there's I, then there's mind. And so because of this attaching in the form of I, then there's also my husband, my wife, my car, my, my fame, my, my pain, my birth, my death. All this my, my, my comes. This ataniya forms a pair with the with the ata. Both I and mine are forms of upadana of attachment. With with the first one, the ata, almost always there comes this this ataniya, this mind. So when that I, the ata, is standing there, anything that comes by is grabbed onto as, as belonging to me, as mine. So because of that I, if there's birth or illness or, or getting old or death, all of these are actually just natural processes. But if the I, the ego, is standing there and it, it grabs onto them as my birth, my aging, my disease, my death, my suffering, because of this I, then there, there occurs suffering. Without the I, without this attachment, there's no basis 
no foundation for suffering, suffering cannot occur. But as soon as that I is standing there, it grabs onto everything as mine and then suffers because of this, this foolishness. So if there's this, this I, then it's, it's always ready to, to take anything and make it into suffering. As soon as there's this I standing there, it, it takes everything to be mine. And then all this, all these I in mind is, is painful, is suffering. This I in mind is like a doormat that welcomes in all kinds of suffering. It's the welcome mat of, of misery. If there wasn't this attachment to I in mind, then suffering would have no opportunity to come in. Suffering would have no opportunity to, to occur. But as soon as there's, there's this blind clinging to things, this foolishness of I and mind, then all the different kinds of suffering can happen. You can, there are countless variations on the theme of misery and pain, but every one of them is dependent on, on the I, on ego, on, on upadana. Take away the upadana and there's just nothing nothing for the suffering to land on. There, it doesn't have an opening. It doesn't have anything on which to, to stand. But, so it's this, this point of upadana, of I, of mind. This is most crucial. If we're going to be free of pain and suffering, we've got to understand this one. So if there's this I, then there's something waiting there, sitting there to receive everything that, that comes by. When there's the I, there's always something to, to welcome everything that makes contact. The things that can make a kind of a pleasant, a pleasing contact, these are considered positive. The things that make an unpleasant contact, which displease the I, these are taken as negative. Therefore, positive and negative happens just because of the I. Without the I, there'd be no positive and negative. So this, this craziness of positive and negative is, happens only because of, because of I. If, if there's the I, there's going to be all this positive and negative and then or if there's if there's ignorance this gives rise to the I and all this positive and negative which is causing us so much trouble but if there is correct under but the the Dhamma the true Dhamma is neither positive or negative it's beyond all positive and negative if there is true wisdom correct understanding of this Dhamma which is beyond positive and negative, then the mind will not be ignorant. It will have the understanding that will allow it to, to live without, without conjuring up this I and then making the foolish blind assumptions of positive and negative. All these projections will cease. If there's 
a correct understanding of Dhamma. And so we need to find a way to acquire this understanding, to, to see this true Dhamma that is beyond positive and negative, so as to not have to put up with this the horror of all this I and positive and negative. To do so, there are certain, certain dhammas, certain things or tools which are necessary. And this is what we'll, we'll talk about next. To understand what needs to be done, we, let's go back to the point of contact, the point where there was I and form and I consciousness coming together, or the same for any of the other five senses. At this moment of contact, as we explained already, if there's a lack of correct understanding, if there's avicca, if stupidity, then there arises these foolish feelings and blind desires and then I and all that mess. But on the other hand, if at the moment of patsa, of contact, there's, there's correct knowledge, vicha, there's, there's dhamma, at that moment of contact, then there isn't any foolish feelings coming up. There are no blind desires, no defilements, no I, no mind. And the mind is free of all that, that stupidity. So what's, what's crucial is having this proper understanding, having Dhamma at the moment of contact. At that moment of contact, <clears throat> there must be sati, mindfulness. Mindfulness is like a, a very fast messenger. It's an almost instantaneous messenger or, or transport system. If there's, at the moment of contact, there's sati, then it immediately goes and gets wisdom. It brings correct knowledge which we've developed through practicing anapanasati or, or any other correct dhamma practice. Through developing, we develop wisdom and it's there. But then this messenger must, must get it and then bring it to that contact. So this must happen very quickly. Mindfulness must be very swift. When mindfulness brings wisdom, to the moment of contact, it becomes sampachanya, which is which is applied wisdom or wisdom performing the specific function of needed in this situation. Then sampachanya deals with the situation properly, and then to support this, there must also be samadhi, a mind that the correct developed mind that is properly focused. This will provide all the energy and strength needed for this to happen. So in the moment of contact we need mindfulness, wisdom, this application of wisdom called sampachanya and then samadhi, the, the properly developed concentrated mind. If all four of them are there then the patsa will not cause any trouble. The contact will not lead to confusion and suffering. Allow us to repeat this again, to go through it, so that you won't, you won't forget it. It's very important that 
we understand what needs to happen here. First, there's sati, this this incredibly rapid transport system. It has to be as quick as, as lightning so that it brings wisdom in time. If sati is a little bit slow, it's, it's, it doesn't work. So it's got to be right there in time. It brings this wisdom, this correct knowledge that we've developed. And then when it's, the wisdom is brought to the contact, to the sense experience, then this, this wisdom goes into action. It understands what's taking place. It understands what needs to be done. It, it understands everything involved in what's happening. And then there's, and then there is samadhi, all the mental strength that is necessary is, is also brought to bear on the contact. If all four of these things are present, if they're sufficient, if they're fast enough, strong enough, if they're there, then there doesn't arise any foolish feeling, there doesn't arise any stupid desires, any stupid attachments, there's none of this, this foolish I and mine, none of the ignorant positive and negative. With all four of these at the contact, no, no misery, no, no suffering occurs. So it's important that we understand what these four things are so that we can develop them and use them properly. Now the question will occur, occur to you, where are we going to get these, these four things? Where can we find these four incredibly valuable things? The answer is that we can obtain, we can find all four of these through developing mindfulness with breathing. If we just take the system of mindfulness with breathing that was originally taught by the Buddha and develop it correctly, then we will end up with more than enough of all four of these things. There will be plenty of mindfulness, plenty of wisdom, plenty of wisdom in action and plenty of concentration you'll have more than enough of all of these if, if we correctly develop mindfulness with breathing. And then one, one won't have any problem with, with these things. They'll be fast enough, strong enough, and there'll be enough of them for our needs. So now we'd like to discuss the outline of the practice of anapanasati. All of you have been working on this for some time now and you've had it explained to you in quite a bit of detail. So we'd like to just go through it in brief to explain how these four, these four tools are developed through anapanasati. First of all, we begin by being mindful of the breathing in and out. And by keeping our attention on the breathing, then we develop quite good mindfulness upon the breathing. And then through that mindfulness, we begin to learn all about the breathing until we understand the breathing inside or out, this comprehensive understanding about the ins and outs of the breathing is, is sampachanya. And then we develop a lot of wisdom, of a, a 
broad general wisdom about the body, the nature of the body, the, the Dhamma within the body, to the point of beginning to see on some level that all this body, all this breathing is anatta, it's not self, none of it is, is I or mine. And then through using the breathing to calm the body, to calm the body further and further, then as the breathing calms more and more, there will develop some degree of concentration. The mind will become concentrated through the calming of the breathing. So just in dealing with the, the beginning part of anapanasati, that which is directly associated with the body, the contemplation of the body, just in doing this we get, we'll get some, and in some cases quite a bit, of these, these different tools. The, the breathing is neither positive or negative. The, the body which breathes is neither positive or negative. Our awareness of the breathing is neither positive or negative. All the different things that are noted in relation to the breathing, none of these are positive or negative. Wait, just here, even from the beginning of practicing anapanasati, we begin to see that, that there's no such thing as positive or negative. It's just our foolishness that later we go and grab onto things as positive or negative. This happens later. But in really practicing anapanasati, we start to see that none of these things are positive or negative. We start to have this deep understanding of, of the Dhamma, of all these natural things, that these natural things just occur in their own way according to causes and conditions. And there's nothing positive or negative about that. We can begin to have this understanding that allows us to be free and above, positive and negative, even here at the, the start in the first steps of anapanasati. Next we come to the second part of, of anapanasati, that which we call vetanu patsana, the contemplation of the vetana, which is somewhat sloppily translated as feeling. In, in dealing with the vetana, we have the opportunity to, to study to become familiar with the most, the most positive thing. Through the first part of the practice, the body and mind become very calm. And then there naturally arises certain very powerful positive feelings. We call one of these piti, the piti feeling. And then there's also sukha, the sukha feeling. This piti feeling is quite active, quite dynamic and stimulating and it has a very delicious positive feeling to it or quality to it. Sukha is much more static or passive and restful but it's also quite delicious. It feels very positive. These are the most positive things we, we can meet in life and so we come to terms with them in the second part of Anapanasati. We we see what they're like and what they do to the mind, all the craziness that they, they stir up. 
And then further, in working with these things, we, we learn how to calm them down. These conditioners of the mind, these concoctors of the mind, we can use wisdom, we can use intelligence and knowledge that we develop to diminish their strength, to weaken them, to calm them down so that they no longer have any power over the mind. When these very positive feelings occur, they tend to cook up, to concoct all kinds of silly notions, um, all kinds of beautiful positive ideas in the mind. And this gets busier and busier and sometimes even goes crazy. But if we use, bring to bear wisdom and understanding about what's going on, then we can calm them down. And so we can, we can stop the thinking that gets concocted by these vetana, or we can, we can prevent the thinking from getting started. Or if it's necessary to think, we can regulate the thinking so it doesn't get out of hand, so it's, it's useful. If we know how to calm down these, these positive feelings, these concoctors of the mind. So in the second part of mindfulness with breathing, we come to terms with these most positive things and get them under control. We calm them down so that the mind can be beyond their, their power. There's a fact that every one of us should observe because it's so central to our lives. This fact is that every one of us is under the domination of these positive feelings. These positive feelings are our masters. They send us running all around the world under at their beck and call. We're, we're slaves to these positive feelings. They have tremendous control over us. But if, if we practice anapanasati as we're describing, then it's possible to, to turn the tables on the vedana, on these positive feelings. And rather than having them control us, we can control them. We're no longer their slaves, we become the master of these positive feelings. And when this can happen, instead of being at the mercy of the positive and the negative, we, the positive and the negative, is at our mercy. And when we've got control over the positive and negative like this, then it's no problem for us. You should observe this, this very important point, as it happens in your own life. This positive alone has the power to stir up all the defilements of, of greed, hatred, and, and delusion. When we when there's something attractive and positive, then we, we want to get it, and there arises desire and greed. If there's something which is displeasing, then if, or if we don't get what we want, or if we have to put up with something we don't like, then this gives rise to, to hatred and anger. Or if we can't, we, can't see, we can't find or we can't make out this positiveness that we want so much, then there arises confusion in all our, our delusions and our muddledness of mind. And so all of these defilements can result from 
this this positiveness to to control to get free of these defilements to keep the mind clean from these defilements then it's necessary to have control of the positive next we come to the part of anapanasati that deals with the mind itself this is connected with what we just talked about about the vetana the vetana stirs up the thinking all our thoughts are rooted in the vetana and so this these thinking the thoughts this gives rise to the jita or the mind jita means that which that which thinks and so all this this once there arise thoughts then we've got the mind if in practicing with the vetana we've gotten control over them then we're able to regulate the thinking that means to control the mind if we've cleaned up the vetana gotten out from under their power then we can keep the thinking within within our un, under our control and so then we can monitor the mind we can regulate the mind so that it thinks so that it acts in the the most useful way the most beneficial way and then we've got a mind that is correct that is balanced we can train this mind to be to be perfectly active ready to do whatever needs to be done it will have all the strength and power that it needs it will have tremendous ability and it will be free this is the best kind of mind that there can be this is what happens in the third part of anapanasati and when we've <clears throat> we've gotten all the those positive feelings under control then we've got tremendous control over the mind we're masters of the mind and then the mind only will will think and act in ways that are are useful if these vetana are under control those positive feelings aren't aren't going wild then the mind will not be pulled off into positive and negative having this control enables us to to keep the mind perfectly balanced perfectly free anything this mind is is free of positive and negative and then if anything positive or negative comes by this mind has the ability to just drive it away chase anything positive or negative away it's able to let go of all positive and negative it's able to free itself of all positive and negative this mind and be careful it's the mind really not it's not us it's the mind has has tremendous power in this mind that is no longer shaken by positive and negative you can say that it's got the the highest equilibrium it's it's unshakable it's very stable <clears throat> very firm so in this mind you've got tremendous tremendous power of concentration or samadhi this is a mind by this point having trained on the body the breathing the feelings and now the mind some sati mindfulness is incredibly fast and subtle 
it can attend to anything. And then we've developed quite a bit of wisdom by examining all these things, quite a bit of knowledge about the way things are. And then this Sampachanya, wisdom in action, is, is highly developed, is quite refined from learning how to work on all these things. And then there's the tremendous power of samadhi, which we've mentioned. So by this point, these four things are, are quite well developed. <clears throat> and so now we come to the fourth and final stage of anapanasati, the part that is called dhammanu patsana, the contemplation of dhamma. This is where, this is the most important part of all, getting to the bottom of dhamma, studying all these things, all these natures, all these dhammas, and then getting to their, their fundamental nature. In this, this is where wisdom really flowers in this, in this part, because in here we study all this dhamma, every aspect of dhamma, every level of dhamma, in all kinds of different ways, until seeing the, the sacha dhamma, the, the truth of all these things that have been happening throughout, throughout our, our meditation practice, especially seeing the law of nature that's, that's within every dhamma. We've been observing impermanence from the very beginning of anapanasati, whether we've noticed it or not. We've been observing it. There's impermanence from the in-breathing, the out-breathing, and through all the various things we've studied up until this point. And so the, the realization the, of, of impermanence grows stronger and stronger until we come to this point in Dhammanupatsana, the contemplation of Dhamma, where this, the realization of impermanence becomes very, very clear and very, very powerful. And so this is how wisdom now is starting to really develop. And so now at this point we come to a full understanding of anijang or impermanence. When we see this impermanence clearly, we see that there's obviously nothing positive about it. Everything's constantly flowing and changing and disintegrating. There's nothing positive about it. But on the other hand, we see also that impermanence, there's, there's nothing negative about it. We can, through understanding it, we can deal with it, we can cope with it, we can solve any difficulties that result from impermanence. And so we see that there's nothing positive or negative about all this impermanence. We see that this basic fact inherent in all conditioned things is neither positive or negative. And when this is absolutely clear, then the mind can remain completely even can keep an even mindedness. It's not pulled off into any direction by anything. It can it can stay peaceful and calm regarding anything from this deep penetration of the the non the unpositiveness and unnegativeness of impermanence. Now we ought to see the, the good side of impermanence. You ought to take, see it from the optimistic view a little bit. If everything was permanent, if nothing changed, then 
we'd be stuck with all this suffering forever. Nothing would change and so we'd suffer on through eternity. We'd be stupid forever. If, if everything was permanent, we'd have no possibility of changing <clears throat> those things which are, are undesirable. Only because of impermanence can we <clears throat> develop, can we get rid of things that we don't need and develop the things we need. If everything was fixed and certain and determined, then, then there's nothing to do. We'd just be stuck right here like this forever. And so we ought to have some appreciation and gratitude for impermanence. Because if it wasn't for impermanence, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything. In fact, if there wasn't impermanence, it would be po impossible to live. So we ought to appreciate this, this useful aspect, this, this value of impermanence. This understanding, this realization of impermanence is quite a high level of wisdom. And when one comes to this, this level of wisdom, then it's certain that the highest level of wisdom will develop. This impermanence is, is seeing the constant change, the, the instability in everything. But we have to live, we have to exist in all this constant change with all this instability. And so that, that's, the hard to, that's hard to live with, that's difficult to live in all this change. And this we call tukang, tukang, the, the miserableness of, of living amidst all this, this change and impermanence. And then there's nothing, there's nothing that can stand up to all this change in miserableness and say, stop, don't be that way. There's nothing that has the power to withstand it, to resist it. Not even the mind can, can stop the, the facts of, of impermanence and this oppressiveness of impermanence, of impermanent things. And this is the truth that's called anatta. There's no self. There's no, there's no free will that can come out there and just have things its way. There's nothing that can get its way that can resist all the impermanence and the oppressiveness of that impermanence. This understanding of anatta, of the selflessness, the egolessness of everything, even the mind, this is the, the pinnacle of wisdom. To, to understand this fully is to understand everything that a human being can understand. This is the highest wisdom that there is. Let us stress once again, there's seeing the constant change. That's in anicca, impermanence. That's hard to live with. It's oppressive, tukang. And then there's nothing that can stand up to it, can resist it. That is anatta, not self. This understanding of anatta is the, the highest wisdom. When with the fact of anatta that nothing is I or mine, nothing, that everything is not self, then there's, there's no room for any positive or negative. There's no place for the positive and negative in, 
when the mind sees anatta. So positive and negative can't arise. They can't have any power or influence over the mind. And so then we have this most important word. We've got atamayata, atamayata. When the mind is aware, is has fully realized the fact of anatta, then it's got atamayata. Nothing, nothing can cook the mind up, can conduct, concoct the mind in a positive or negative way. So the mind has got this atamayata where it's it's untouchable, it's unconcoctable. And this is the mind that's it's unaffectable. This is the mind that is completely free. And so now you can see that all four of these things have been fulfilled and perfected. We've we've developed sati on on everything, even being mindful of the deepest truths. There's wisdom has been perfected through the full realization of anatta and then having atamayata, this is the the highest wisdom. We've able to apply this wisdom in every situation. And the mind, as we said earlier, has has tremendous power. So all four of these are have been fully developed through anapanasati, through correctly practicing according to this system. All four of these necessary tools are fulfilled and completed. You've got more than enough of all of them to deal with all the experiences of life. So then all we have to do is once these have been developed is to go and use them. Bring them to every patsa, every contact. And that's what life is. Life is just an endless flow of these contacts through the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and mind. Just all these experiences. Bring, bring these four things to bear on every contact. Don't let any stupidity arise. Bring this mindfulness, this wisdom, this wisdom in action and concentration to the patsa. No, wis- no foolishness can occur and so there's none of these foolish feelings, crazy desires, the ego, the positive and the negative. By using these four things at every, every moment of contact, then the flow, the, the, the foolish flow of the mind that ends up in dukkha is cut. So the mind doesn't slide off into to suffering, into misery anymore. So this this ends our explanation of how anapanasati will develop the ability, how anapanasati gives us the method to to fully realize and practice the Dhamma in every moment of our experience. Now we shouldn't, as this process is, is developing, then these four tools are, are growing as well. And so throughout all our, our waking experience, we can apply, practice applying all of these tools as best we can. And then through continually practicing anapanasati, continually developing these four things and then continually applying them in daily life in every moment of patsa, then more and more there is there is wise contact 
so we experience without any of this craziness of positive and negative. So then life is more and more free of the positive and the negative. So this, this ends our, our talk today. And once again, we thank you for being excellent listeners, for, for being able to sit through this long talk and, and listening very well. Thank you.